Well, if you have your Bibles, <clears throat> you should be well aware by now that we're in Romans chapter 12. I told you when we uh, started uh, the book of Romans that chapter 12 was probably a key chapter for your life and my life. Uh, it really deals with the aspect of, of how we're to deal with other people and uh, unsaved people. It doesn't really deal with how we're to deal with God's people. That comes a little bit later on in chapter 14 and 15. But chapter 12 starts out by talking about the fact that we need to be a living sacrifice. And you remember that I told you a great truth when we looked at that aspect. And it's been several weeks ago. <clears throat> it wasn't the fact that, it was the fact that God doesn't want your life. God doesn't want your heart. God doesn't want uh, anything about you other than your body. And when God has your body, then you're going to be a living sacrifice. Christ's death on the cross would have been absolutely of none effect if he wouldn't have submitted his body to it. He could have prayed all day long in the garden, and he could have talked about how much he loved God and how much he wanted to serve God, and God was his father. He could have went through all of the rhetoric as we do. But the thing that made it all real was the fact that he put his body on that cross. And for you and for me, a living sacrifice, God has not asked us to die for him. Now, yet I understand by saying that, that there are some times and people will, will, will lose their life in the cause of Christ. We certainly know that. But on the whole, God never asked you and me to die for him. He asked us to live for him. And truth of the matter is, living for God is a lot, lot harder than dying for God. Uh, and so when we talk about these things today, we want to always keep the context of chapter 12, dealing with other people. Then he says, and then last week we looked at two aspects of the four aspects of, of doing God's ministry. And the ministry we know is people. And growing through the process by grace and faith. And we looked last time at learning to wait on ministry. And I told you how that, uh, whether you're a young man or a young lady, the ministry is the key aspect. And the ministry is people. My goal for every one of you, uh, you may not realize this goal, you may never get to it, but my goal for you is to work with somebody at some point in your life. The really, you will never really understand what ministry is or really never get the benefit of all that God gives you until you sit down with somebody and begin to be responsible for teaching them the Bible and, and, and accountable to them and for them and helping them figure it all out. And I told you that uh, that's a process. You have to learn to wait on ministry. You don't just get saved and then six months later, uh, even though there are some things that you can do and there's some things you should be doing as soon as you get saved. But dealing with people comes through the process of time of watching what goes on around here, working with people with somebody else, and we do that a lot with our discipleship program, and then coming about where you actually take and lay hands uh, on somebody to work with them through the ministry. And then we looked at the second aspect, and that is to always keep the ministry in a simple form, the simplicity of ministry. And, uh, you know, we, we have a tendency as human beings to make everything complicated in life. The Bible, on the other hand, believe it or not, has a tendency to make everything simple. The hardest books in the Bible that man says are hard to understand, take the book of Revelation, take the book of Hebrews. We know from our past studies that the three books of the Bible where everybody gets messed up on and every heresy in the world comes from is Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews. And yet we know 
uh, how easy those books are when you just get the basic breakdown. Revelation, the great complex book that, you know, that people pay great amounts of money to hear somebody lay out. Two keys to Revelation, and the whole book just unfolds itself in front of you. The book of Hebrews, same way. The book of Acts, the same way. The book of Matthew, the same way. And, of course, we've seen that, that God's plan with the Bible is to make it easy. Man's plan is to make things harder. Now, today we're going to look at the last two. And some of the uh, Christian qualities, then, we'll begin to look at that we develop through this process of growth that are absolutely essential in fulfilling God's plan of ministry in our lives. Now, I want to begin reading in, in, in chapter 12, and I want to pick it up in verse 4. Now, we've read some of this before, but let's go on with it as we go through it. For as we have many, uh, we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office. So we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts, differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. Uh, He that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceit. Now, Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you for all that you've done for us, for all that you've given us. We pray, Father, today that you'll help us focus today uh, on this great passage. And, Lord, these are good people here, and they brave the weather and the elements to come out today, Father, to, uh, to hear your word. And I pray, Father, that you'll uh, give them all that they need. We thank you for those that are in this room today who, who uh, are beginning the concept and understanding of ministry. We thank you, Father, for the people that are willing to share themselves in teaching and working through uh, other people in their lives and help them. And help us today, all of us, to leave today a little smarter and a little closer to you. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, the next gift he mentions here is the gift of ruling. And I want to... I'll break this down and help you understand it. This would basically be a, a position of authority in a church. You know, every church, every church has to operate under an authority. An authority. Now, the, the final authority in any church ought to be the Bible. And under that, then God gives us a pastor. And when that pastor follows the Word of God and follows the principles, the patterns, the models in the Bible, it works very well. The pastor's job then is to train up other men and women who understand uh, what he's trying to do, understand what the ministry is, learn the models and the patterns, and then, you know, re- reproduce himself uh, in, in those people as, as they grow. And, you know, in every church, there has to be leadership. I'm a firm believer, and I believe this with all my heart. I've believed it for many years, that everything, not just in churches, everything rises and falls on leadership. 
as far as I'm concerned, and we're talking about ministry in, 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 that, in churches and that as such, so I'll confine my remarks to that, but I believe that's true in anything. But I especially believe it's true in churches. Leadership is essential. Uh, God's people, uh, when God concept of the church, when God made you and me, he made you and me to be dependent on somebody to follow. Now, ultimately, it's himself. But when a concept of the church, and you see that in the Old Testament, in the concept of the church, God has set a structure that is likened to his body, the church. And through that body, there has to be a, an, an authority pr- process of leadership that, uh, that you have to follow. And I believe personally, not only do I believe that everything rises and falls on leadership, but I believe a good leader has to be a good follower. I believe a good leader has to be able to submit himself to the people that he leads in time when he gives them something to do that he doesn't come back in and, 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 and try to change the aspect of it that uh, if he gives something to somebody to do, then, then, then that's what that person is, does. I know that uh, this, you know, the Bible's likened to an army. Bible, uh, Christianity is likened to soldiers. And in the military, that's the, that's the routine they follow. Any, any battalion has a commander, any division has a commander, and everything works down through that, through the chain of authority. You have a combat company, you'll have a commanding officer that's probably a captain, you'll have four platoons, over each platoon will be a first or second lieutenant, and then within that you have the NCOs from the first sergeant right down to the, right down to the privates. And the way you lead in the military is the same way you should lead in Christianity, from the top down. And that is the chain of command that you hear so much about. When you get into a tough situation, all the new guys look to the older guys. The older guys look to the officers, and right on down the line. There's a great comfort when you're in a really bad situation that the guys who are in charge have a command about them that seems, even though it may not be always true, that they have control of the situation. That's leading from the top. That's chain of command. And that certainly should be true in Christianity. Christianity should be the aspect where uh, that, uh, that the leadership is so in sync that even in bad times, there's a confidence. Now, the difference between Uncle Sam's army and God's army is the fact that you can be in a bad situation in an ambush someplace or in a bad thing where you're surrounded, and you can have all the, all the commands and all of the confidence in the world and still get killed at the end of the day. I mean, that's the difference. In God's army... It doesn't matter if you get killed because all that matters is you get the job done for the Lord. So it's a little different in that, but it's the same concept. And I want to explain from a biblical concept defining uh, this rule by example. Take your Bibles and turn over, if you would. Take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. And let's look at uh, verses 1 through 4. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, it says this, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly. Uh, not for filthy lucre, that's money, uh, but of a ready mind. Neither being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Now, this particular aspect here, notice I want you to see 
that there's a crown associated with this. If you're a child of God and you know been around here any length of time, you'll know that the Bible lays out there's five crowns that we can get as Christians at the judgment seat of Christ. And this crown here is for teaching people the Bible. If you're someone in this church and you're actively teaching somebody the Word of God, then you've already got that crown if you're doing it with the right attitude of heart. But more than that, 3 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4 is really the definitive passage on, on leadership. We get the idea, uh, it's, it's, you know, um, we get the idea that leadership in many churches, this is true, where the pastor actually keeps absolute control over the people. I know churches in this town where the pastors are really not pastors and the churches aren't really churches. They're more like third world countries and they're the dictator that runs it. They tell you what to listen to and what not to listen to. I know pastors within a 30-mile radius of what I'm talking about that will not allow their people to listen to certain other guys' messages because of the fact they're afraid that you'll learn something about the Bible that they don't know. I told you the story about the pastor that uh, had such control over his people that on Sunday morning after church, everybody is required to go out to eat together at a certain place. Why? Because he wants everybody back that night and to hear him preach again. Therefore, he has complete control over it because if you say, well, I can't go, then you're suddenly on the outside looking in. I've talked about the fact where, you know, there's a control over deacons that uh, they, they hold over your head the fact that you're a deacon and don't let you do anything other than what is church business or related. It's incredible out there in what takes place. That's not biblical leadership. And much of what you see as leadership in many churches has nothing to do with the Bible. I told you the story about the same pastor that uh, a guy and a wife were having marital problems. She went to the pastor and talked to the pastor about what was going on. And the pastor went into the guy's house and removed his wife from him. And uh, it goes on like that all the time. That's just the way that it is. That's not, that's not biblical leadership. In verse 3, you find the key to what he's talking about in the gift of ruling and the gift of being in a position of authority. And he says this, Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. Now, there's what a leader is supposed to be. A leader is not the Lord over the people and tell them what to do. That's not a position of leadership in the church. What a leader is supposed to do, in this case, it's elders. We don't have any elders in our church yet. You're going to hear the word elder a lot the next couple of years. But we don't have any bona fide elders in our church at this particular point in time. But an elder is someone, the Bible says, is an overseer with a pastor. An elder, and there's male elders and female elders in the Bible. Remember, an elder is not an office. It's a, it's a position of spiritual maturity. And an elder in the Bible is called an overseer. He's someone who over helps the pastor oversee what's going on with the people. And it's, a, it's probably, uh, you know, the, the only, there's only two levels, of, uh, only one level above that. And uh, an elder in the Bible is someone that has, has been around, paid their dues, learn ministry, understand the pastor's heart in it, and then come to the place that are overseeing it with him. And, of course, the key is not how much you know about the Bible. The key is not how long you've been around or what position you hold in the church. The key is the example you are to the believers of what the Bible says a real Christian ought to be. That's the key to uh, ruling. It's not telling somebody what to do. It's not walking around saying, I'm in charge of this. Every, somebody's going to have to be in charge of something every time we do something. 
And it's great to work the thing around where everybody, it's like what we do with the mission. Everybody gets a chance to preach uh, and lay out the Bible. And, uh, you know, I'd love to have a system where uh, in time that you do the same thing with everything we do around here. That's what we do in the nursery, as we talked about, where everybody gets a shot to take responsibility for what needs to be done in this church. But the single greatest aspect of leadership or the gift of ruling is not to look at it like you're in some position where you can order people around, but in reality in a position that you lead other people not by what you know about the Bible, not by how long you've been in some position, but, and you see this all the time in church, but rather by example. People look at you and they say, boy, that's what I want to be when I get spiritually mature. My greatest example of that in my life is my father and the Lord, Mel Shabaka. And uh, I remember all of my life watching him. I look back at my life now and, 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 you know, all the years I spent with him and all the things I got to see with him, I can't think, I wish I could say this about myself, but I can't, but I can say it about him, and I'm sure I'm wrong because I wasn't with him all the time, but in my personal public time with him, I never saw him come to the point where he ever violated a biblical principle in, in what he did. Now, he may be in his own, I mean, he wasn't perfect, and I'm sure, I mean, uh, I mean, he could, I mean, uh, you get him moved the wrong way, and he'd give you a four-star cussing like you ain't never heard since you got out of the Navy, but that's, everybody's got their downside. I learned as many good cuss words from it as I did Bible notes in my Bible. But they're in the back and under a separate cover there. But anyway. But the bottom line is the Bible says the gift of ruling is with diligence. And that simply means you, you take serious what your responsibilities are. You know, churches get to a point where they, every, you know, it's exciting for a while and everybody gets into it and everybody's fun with it. And after about six or seven years, you know what, the newness wears off. And then the drudgery of every day doing the ministry sets in. I'd, all of my life, I've seen God's people come to the point where they learned a lot of Bible, they got a lot of things down, and they got to a point in their life where then they just kind of lived off of what they already had and started coasting. And that's a, that's a bad situation to be in. He says you do it with diligence. The greatest single commodity we have in this church or in any church will be the people that God gives us. So a leader rules... A leader rules not with the authority of lording over people, but with the authority of the fact that he has a, or she has, the principles of the Word of God working in their life. And you take those principles and other people see them. He rules, but he does not lord over other people. But he has a set of standards that he or she follows that, that keeps the thing uh, in the example that it needs to be. Now, let me just say this. <clears throat> in leadership... Nobody's perfect. But he's not talking about being perfect. <clears throat> when you start to talk about leadership in the church, or in this case, elders or anybody who is, is overseeing the flock and helping the pastor, you realize that uh, uh, there's a phrase here or a word here that pops up dealing with the pastor and certainly with the elders and really certain for all of God's people, and that is the word blameless. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, that it is a true saying that if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. But then he says this in verse 2, a bishop must, then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. 
Now, this aspect of blamelessness for a child of God, starting with a pastor, working down through the leadership, right on down to anybody who is seeking an aspect of, of to do the ministry, uh, whatever it may be. The concept of blameless is probably one of the most misunderstood aspects you're ever going to find. I know pastors to this day that, that uh, have made mistakes in their life and have got a divorce, maybe 20, 30 years ago in their life. Some of them before they were saved, some of, it, some of them after they were saved. And the brethren have a, have, a, have a weird thing about that. They think that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin except the sin of divorce. And I don't know how many times I've seen it in the pastor circles around in the fellowships and all that, where they look at a brother uh, that is pastoring a church, and maybe he got a divorce and, and a bad time in his life and went through that and lost his family and lost his wife. Uh, in some case, sometimes it was his fault, sometimes it wasn't his fault. It doesn't seem to matter. The bottom line is they'll say that that man cannot pastor because he's not blameless. Now, let me just say something to you in the sight of the principles of the Word of God. There ain't nobody in this room that's blameless. We like to think, I remember one guy one time that he was talking about the fact that one pastor shouldn't pastor because he was blameless. And come to find out a little bit later on, he was being investigated by the FBI because of the fact that he was skimming banks all over town and, and, uh, and he was standing up telling somebody else wasn't blameless when he wasn't blameless himself. I've seen guys, pastors stand up where they talked about this guy wasn't qualified for the ministry, was blameless, and in their own personal life, they were, uh, uh, you know, abusing their own kids and abusing their own wife and abusing their own family. Blameless never means the fact that you and I are without blame. I have never understood how a bishop, a pastor, is supposed to be blameless when he gets blamed for everything that happens. I've, I've been in the ministry a long time. You know what? Whatever decision you make, if you ever get into leadership, whatever decision you make, somebody's not going to like it. Whatever you decide to do, somebody's not going to be happy with it. There's always going to be the people that, that look at what you do and think they could do it better or don't like what you do or it rubs them the wrong way and they're going to criticize you for it. If you walked around worrying about everything that everybody thought and said and did, you'd never get anything done. So you know what you do? You find a model in the Bible. You stay with that model in the Bible. Make sure what you do and the decisions you make are based on the principles of the Word of God and then you go with it from there. You know what blameless is? Blameless is the fact that when we make a mistake, and let's face it, most Christians, most pastors cannot admit when they make a mistake. I've known pastors that, boy, I'll tell you what, whatever problem was in the church was always somebody else's problem. And that's simply not true. We all make mistakes. I told you last week, you know, or a week before last, there's nothing wrong with making mistakes. I mean, we all make them. But do you learn from the mistakes? That's the key. And many people never learn from their mistakes. It isn't about blameless is not that you go around without any blame. Blameless is that when you do something wrong or you do something stupid, you make it right, right on the spot and make, take care of it. And at that point, you're blameless. That's what blameless is. It isn't walking around all of your life and saying, well, I've never done this or I've never done that or I've never been involved in this or I'm not going to do that, therefore I'm blameless. Nobody's blameless. Blameless is that when you make a mistake, you take the blame for it and get it right with whoever, whatever, God if it needs to be, and at that point, you're blameless. And of course, we, we have a tough time with that today in, in churches. We really do. 
the rule of leadership in the church is basically uh, staying blameless because of the fact that uh, you're honest enough to know that when you did something you shouldn't have done or, you, or something happened that you, it's on your watch that you should have dealt with, then you deal with it and you take it from there. And the rule of leadership in the church, as we've talked about already, is, is overseeing, helping but never hurting. The real key to it, and you've heard me say it many, many times, and that is bearing one another's burden. You know, most Christians, most pastors, have a terrible time saying they were wrong, much less saying they were wrong and taking the blame when they were right. And many times in the ministry, that's what you've got to do. I've told you before, it's not about who wins the argument. It's not about who's right or who's wrong. Now, I understand that there are some scenarios that you've got to deal with. But in most of the stuff that goes on in our lives, you know what? You just deal with it. And if you have to take the blame for it when you didn't do it to get the cause of Christ to move on, then that's what you do. Great concept. Great concept. This is why I push biblical principles so much, models, biblical patterns. It comes down to a principled life because you just simply can't please everybody. I'm not saying you should try to please everybody. But when you follow the models, when you follow the principles, when somebody sits down with you and says, why did you do this the way you did it? What are you doing here? When you can open up the Bible and show them the model and the passage and the pattern, you have something to fall back on. Most Christian leaders, most pastors, they fly by the seat of their pants. They, they rule by emotion, not by principles. I cannot tell you how important it is to have a principled life. Living your life by the principles. It'll never be perfect, but you'll have the principles that you have to deal with. All right, now the second aspect he talks about is the aspect of showing mercy to others with cheerfulness. Now remember, all of these are based on the first concept that we looked at, that somebody who rules, rules by example. So all of these are based on the fact that you and I do these things based on our example. That's what we're supposed to do. Now, second aspect, he says, is showing mercy to others with cheerfulness. You know, if I didn't know God's people were truly God's people any other way, I know they were God's people simply by how screwed up they get and how they just absolutely are the strangest birds in the world sometimes. We are cheerful. We are cheerful. We are happy today that God showed us mercy. We are ecstatic today that God showed us mercy and saved us and forgave us of our sins, and we are ecstatic about it. The songs we sing, the verses that we read, the greatest sermons you'll ever preach that will uplift somebody is to tell them what God has done for them and how God has shown them mercy. We like getting God's mercy. We just have a hard time giving that mercy to somebody else. That's God's people. That's the way we are. We're cheerful that God showed us mercy. Well, let me tell you something. It makes others happy when you show them mercy. You know what mercy is in the Bible? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Mercy is God or somebody taking the sentence away. Whatever we did, when God gave me mercy, he looked at all of my sins and he took them away. And you know what he did? He took them on himself. And you know what else he was? He was happy about it. He was happy about it. 
Then you have God's people who say, well, you know, they show mercy. They show forgiveness. But all the while, they hold a grudge. You can't show mercy and forgiveness all the while holding a grudge. Is that the way God did it with you and me? Did God save you and then bring it up every day what a rotten scoundrel you were? No. You know what? God saved you and forgot about it, and you and I bring it up to him what a rotten scoundrel. He never does. You see, God has the ability and the capacity to do something that most of us cannot do. God has the ability not only to forgive us our sins, he has the ability to forget the sins that we did. And that's a great quality. That's a great quality. You see, forgiving and showing mercy when you all the time you're holding a grudge deep down inside, that's not mercy. The mark of real spiritual maturity of a child of God is not to just only forgive, but to have grace and mercy to forget. Now, I know what the standard idea is. I've heard people say it. I've heard pastors say it. Well, you know what? When we get to heaven and we get God's mind and we get God's body, we'll not only be able to forgive, but we'll be able to forget too. Let me tell you something. If you're saved and you're some kind of spiritual relationship with God, you ought to get to the place in your life or be at the place in your life where you can forgive somebody and then you can forget what they did because it ought to be in your life at some point because that's a character quality of God. That's not something you got to wait to get to heaven to get. Somebody says, well, when you get God's mind, that's the way it'll be. You've got God's mind in the Word of God. You know how you forget something somebody did to you? You know how you forgive and forget? Do you know how you get to that point in your life? I mean, come on. I mean, the Bible says showing mercy with cheerfulness. Listen, when you forgive somebody, you ought to let them know you're happy about it. And what God did, you ought to be able to say to them, you know what, I'm happy. Yeah, you wronged me. Yeah, you did this, you did that. But what God has done for me, I'm going to be able to do for you. And man, I'm happy about it. Isn't that what God did for me and you? Didn't God forgive you? Didn't God show you mercy? And then God wrote you a whole book telling you how happy he was what he did. And the mark of maturity in your life and in my life and this church. As you grow. And I know, I know it's a process of growth. I'm not, I'm not saying you ought to get saved on Monday and be able to do all these things on Tuesday. But certainly by Thursday. <laughs> See? It's a process. The two great character qualities of God. The two great character qualities of God will be the two greatest character qualities in your life and my life as a Christian, and that is the ability to show mercy and forgive and be happy about it. And you know how you do it? You absolve others of the deeds that they have done, maybe sometimes to you, by understanding how God absorbed all the rotten deeds you did against him. Bible says in verse 16, be not be wise in your own conceit. You know what that means? That means I've actually seen God's people. I've act, not, maybe not in this church, but I've actually seen God's people come to the point where they get so puffed up that God has forgiven them and they take all of God's mercy and all of God's goodness, but all of their lives, they hold grudges against people and they still think that they have some kind of spiritual relationship with God. Let me tell you something. If the greatest quality of God is forgiving and moving on and forgetting and burying things and going with it, let me tell you something. You'll never have the relationship with God that you have till you get that quality in your life. It may take a while, but it better get there sooner or later. 
God give you grace to get through it. God give you grace to work through something. That's what God's all about. But sooner or later, you hit the brick wall. You've got to remember and understand that what God did for you, what God did for me, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, I'm happy about it today. You don't see me walking around saying, what's wrong with you today? Oh, God forgave me and gave me his mercy, and I'm just really upset about it. I'm happy about it. Hey, on the worst day of my life, on the worst day of my life when everything falls down around my shoulders, the thing that lifts up my spirit, the fact that God's mercy and God's grace, even though my world may be falling around my shoulders, you know what? If I die today, I'm still going to heaven. I got 98% of the world beat right there. I'm happy about it. I'm happy about it. Now we come to verses 9 through 16. Now here he starts going through some of the things that are absolutely key for you and me to be used of God in ministry. And remember now, the ministry is people. He laid out two great aspects, the last two of the four. He laid out the things that we looked at today. And then he begins to go through from verses 9 through 16, really to the end of the chapter. And I'm not sure we'll get through all of this today, but we'll go as far as we can. And we'll finish it up here probably next week. And he starts going through some great concepts, some great principles that are absolutely necessities in your life and my life. If you're going to fancy yourself to work with people, and I hope that you do, if you grow to the point where you can really be valuable to me in this ministry, and my, my goal is to get you there, you will not get there without letting these aspects be developed in your life. And these are areas when I teach you the Bible and I lay out the Word of God and I give you the things that we talk about on Thursday night and Sunday morning and the one-on-one and the problems we go through, these are the areas that God develops in your life as you grow in grace and faith in truth. Working with people is a very humbling experience. Working with people is a situation that always makes you look back and be thankful what God has done in your life. There are some truly terrible situations you're going to have to try to unravel, sort out. My week is filled with people whose lives are absolutely, uh, absolutely just embroiled in problems. Most of them are not even members of this church, that they come in from other avenues. And I try to sit down and help them work through things and help them deal with things. I have people that deal with relationship problems. I have people that deal with drug problems, people who deal with alcohol problems, people deal with just worldly problems. And I'm telling you, when you get into those situations, you have to many times see some of the most ugliest things that you have to deal with in people's life. And it's a humbling experience if you approach it from God's aspect. Now, I call passages like chapter 9 through verse 16 I call them my reality text. If you look in my Bible, you'll find that all my reality texts are circled in red. Sometimes they're just a verse. Sometimes they're whole passages. When I go through my Bible, and I know you all got your system. Some of your Bible look like the rainbow that Dorothy was trying to get to. Say, Wizard of Oz, you got so many colors in it. You've color-coded every day. That's good if it works for you. Me, I'm a basic guy. I can only use two colors, yellow and red. And, uh, and, I, and I use those. And the yellows are things that I want to stand out. The reds are things that are what I call my reality verses. Because I like reality verses. And I, I love passages like this. Because I'm just like anybody else. And it's passages like this that always bring me into reality of what a Christian really is and what I'm supposed to be. 
and very little of our Christian testimony to the world or other Christians is based on what we know about the Bible. And I know that we think that. We fall into that trap. We think that the real essence of our being a, a viable Christian is what we know about the Bible. And sometimes we think that our valuability to God is based on how well we can lay out the Bible. And those are subtle traps that we fall into. And this is why I like places like this, my reality text, because it shows that those things are what really the key. What really is the key is not based on how well we know the Bible or how well we say it, but it's the areas that we're about to look up that make and breaks us in what follows. You know, human nature is a funny thing. I've studied human nature. I think one of the greatest studies you'll ever take is human nature. I love watching people. I love listening to people talk. I, if I get into a crowd of people, I will say very little unless somebody asks me a question. But I'll listen to everything that goes on. I can sit in an airport terminal and watch people all day long and never get bored as long as there's a Burger King someplace close. But human nature is a funny thing. All our lives, God's people, you and me, people in general, pretend that reality really isn't so. You know what New Year's Eve is all about? And I love New Year's Eve. But New Year's Eve for the world and many Christians is a place to go where they can step out of reality. I mean, uh, did you read about the, the, the plane coming over from, uh, uh, landed in Detroit where the guy had a bomb strapped to his waist and uh, the only thing it did would burn him up. But uh, the bottom line is it would have just been easy. He could have blew up the plane. You realize there's no safe place in this country today? There's no safe place. You say, well, church is a sanctuary. How many churches has somebody walked through the back door and shot 20 people in it? There's no safe place on this planet today. Maybe 50 years ago, 100 years ago, you could find a place of sanction. Not today. There's no place you can go. Nothing you can do. I mean, the Bible says, everybody says, well, you know what? The airline security. The airline security? (laughs) The shoe bomber. How'd he get on? This guy. This guy walked on a plane and from two airports. Nobody even stopped to check anything. You know how I would, the first thing I would have, but we can't do this in America. The first thing would have told me that there might have been something wrong was the name Abdu Alaba Adaba Dubadeba. That was the first thing I would have said, look at him. No, no, the old lady going to Disney World gets pulled off the plane. But Abdu Alaba Dubadaba, he gets on the plane with a bomb. Now, this is the same government that's going to take care of your health care. What, what was your last experience at the DMV like? What was your last experience at the post office like? Reality is a tough thing. There is no safe place today. We like to think there's a safe place because we don't want to deal with reality. And New Year's Eve is just a little time that the world can step back, throw a party, have fun, and step out for a moment of time from all of the heartache, the pain, and the agony, and all the reality that there's nothing out there that means anything. And then you know what they do the next day? They have to face it and go back through it again. Doesn't do a thing for them. I think reality for a child of God is the greatest single thing. I've seen parents justify their kids in whom they marry and then wind up in the sorriest state they've ever been in. 
I've, I, I, I've, I've, seen, I, I, I've seen people pretend that it was their job or their situation at work that prevented them from winning people to Christ. I've seen people pretend that they were not overweight when everybody around them knew they were overweight. I see people pretend they're not getting older. They spend millions of dollars with Botex, Botex, all of that stuff. I mean, liposuction, everything in the world to try to get themselves to think the reality that they're staying off old age. You can't do it. The fitness center that I go to, there's this one gal there. She's got to be 90. She thinks she's 40. Has you ever seen anything funnier than a 90-year-old woman trying to pretend she's 40? She fell off the bicycle last week. She has, I don't know who her plastic surgeon is, but he has probably made a lot of money off of this gal. And everybody just, I feel sorry for her, but you can't help but laugh. I mean, it's the goofiest thing in the world. Be sad. You don't have to tell me about it. I'm going to be 60 this year. You think I'm liking it? I'm dealing with it every day. But I've come to the place, you know what, that's the process of life. Now, you're not going to see me go get a vet and go get, uh, you know, uh, Tommy Lama clothes and start wearing around and suddenly think trend like I'm 30 again. Is that was is it Tommy Lama? Tony Lama. I, I was his brother, Tommy. I know him. Tommy, Tony, you buy it. Tony, you buy at Dillard's and those places. Tommy, you buy at Walmart. That was his brother. Hey, you know what? We pretend, don't we? We pretend our life is really great when it's really in a mess. We pretend our kids are okay when they're really not. We pretend we're okay with God when we're deep down inside we know we're not. And when it comes to ministry, people, we like to think we're okay, but we know that, uh, you know, that, that when what we do, we pretend that it's what I know about the Bible, it's what I, how much I can lay it out, or how long I've been here, or my position, or, oh, the reality, the reality of things like this. These things that I'm about to show you that he lays out after he sets down the aspect that we're to be examples are really the keys to where we're at. And this is the reality. It isn't about what I know. It isn't about how well I can lay it out. It's about the bottom line is, are these character qualities in my life? I have to look at these just like you do. Not somebody sitting up here saying, I've mastered these and you better look at them. Let me tell you something. These reality things mean so much to me because they point out my deficiencies of who I am. Totally, 100%, every day of my life. How many times have you heard me say, when you read the Bible, the Bible starts to read you? That's a true statement. I don't know of any other statement about the Bible that's truer than that. The Bible's a living book. And when you open up the pages of the Bible and you begin to read the Bible, the Bible begins to read you. But along with that, I'm going to tell you something else. And this is just as true, and you better get it down. Bob and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago uh, when I was over at his home. But let me tell you this. Not only when you read the Bible does the Bible begin to read you, but nothing defines a man or a woman better than the ministry they're in. Nothing. The ministry, because of what it requires from you. The ministry, because there can be no guile in ministry. You can't pretend in ministry. And when you understand the basic aspects of these principles, you realize that what ministry does, and this is what people look for. When you teach somebody the Bible, when you claim to be a leader, a deacon, a pastor, an elder, whatever the case, 
When you take that rule of responsibility at that moment, just like when you start reading the Bible, the Bible reads you. When you start to stand up in a place of leadership, you begin before everybody that's watching you to define who you really are. There's some things you can't fake in life. You can fake you're happy with your wife when you're not. Wives can fake they're happy with their husband when they're not. Not too often, but many times they can. Your wife, you may want to go out to eat some night with your wife, and you may have this place in your mind that you just can't live without, and your wife says she wants to go this place, and you're smart enough to know that you better just cancel your plans, and you, you, you can fake with her that you're really excited about going this place, but all the time you're there, you're wishing you were someplace else. You can fake to your friends you're happy when you're not. You can put on a smiley face, but you know what you can't fake? You cannot fake true spirituality with God in ministry because ministry defines you. See, you, this is why some people don't want to get into ministry. Because ministry, you can come to a church and sit there and go through all the motions just fine. You can fake that. But when you start to take responsibility and you start to put on the name tag of somebody who's going to now be a leader in the sense of what we're talking about, a position of authority, boy, it defines you just like that. And people see through it. Now, the first thing he says here, verse 9. He says, let love be without dissimulation. You know, the word dissimulation has two meanings in it. The first meaning means with partiality. That would be not loving everybody the same. That would be having favorites. That would be uh, love that is not unconditional. That would be love that uh, is partial to some people. And as I said before, the ministry is filled with unlovable people. I mean, that's just the bottom line. But that does not require you or me to love them anyhow. And so the first aspect of dissimulation is to be partial in your love. And he says, let love be without dissimulation. You can't love some people and not love others. You just can't. Lady said to me one time, she says, I want to divorce my husband. She said, and I, she said, and I said, why is that? She says, you hate him. I said, ma'am, you can't hate him. She says, I hate him. I said, well, you've got to love your husband. She says, I am loving him as my husband. I hate him as my husband. I said, then, you gotta, then if you can't love him as your husband, then you've got to love him as your, your neighbor. She says, I don't want him as my neighbor, and I don't love him as my neighbor. I said, okay, then you've got to love him as your enemy, but you've got to love him. It's just that simple. You can't decide who you're going to love and who you're not. You just can't. It just doesn't work that way. Then the second definition is with hypocrisy. Dissimulation will be love with hypocrisy. That means not really loving, but pretending we do. And that's another aspect of it. You know, there are some priorities in love. The old saying is, God first, others second, and me last. That's a pretty good priority. You know, William Booth, I never get to Christmas time, but I don't think of William Booth. William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. He died back in the early 1900s, maybe the latter part of the 1800s. Originally, the Salvation Army was a great organization of winning people to Christ. It's pretty much a social system now. But when William Booth founded it, he was a Civil War general, and uh, he, uh, he was a great soul winner. And when he founded the Salvation Army, it was simply that, an army of people seeking salvation for souls. And he was a great man. He'd been dead now over 100 and some years. He walked through the first 
Salvation Army building today to have a heart attack before he got past the first ashtray. But back then, he was a great guy. And the Salvation Army was a great organization. He died on Christmas Eve. He died on Christmas Eve, 1899, 1898. I forget the exact date. And every Christmas, he would come to the radio and he would address all of his people. And they would, all across the country, all across the world, they would crowd around the radios and they would listen to his Christmas addressed to them to challenge them for the next year. He'd been very sick and was very weak. They didn't know how long he was going to live. And many of them were were heartbroken that they would not get to hear a final Christmas message from General Booth. He mustered up enough courage and they fixed it all up around his bed that he could give some kind of message for them at Christmas. And all around the world, followers and men who were part of the Salvation Army and men of other Christians gathered around that radio to hear his great Christmas message. He was weak. He was almost dead. He was just about ready to die. And that night on Christmas Eve, when the whole world was tuned in with the Salvation Army to hear this great soul winner talk about and give his Christmas message, his message was one word, just one word. The word was others, others. His whole life was about others. His whole world was about other people. His whole life was loving them unconditionally. His whole life was built without hypocrisy, without partiality. His whole life was built on understanding what God had done for him. That he, and he dealt with the dredges of society. He dealt with the people that were down and out. And down and out back in that day was nothing like uh, the down and out today. It was a terrible scenario. And he dealt with that crowd all of his life. And he always loved them without dissimulation. He always loved them without partiality. He always loved them without hypocrisy. And on his deathbed, the last thing he said before he went home to be with the Lord was the number one thing in his heart that he had that carried him through life. Others. 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 You see, true biblical love will always be through Christ's love for you. Unconditional. The Bible says love your enemies. How do you do that? You love them through Christ. You do the same thing. Most people think, and you hear this all the time, you hear people tell you all the time that, you know, God loves the, God loves the sinner, uh, but he hates the sin. You know, that's not true. And you hear that. I've heard preachers say that. I heard preachers get up and say, well, you know what? God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. And we quote that like it's in the Bible someplace, or Jesus said that. Muhammad, uh, Gandhi said that. That was one of his little sayings. That God loved the sinner but hated the sin. That's not true. The Bible teaches that if an unsaved man or woman, that the wrath of God abides on them already. When God sees an unsaved man or a woman, they're as good as in hell right now with the door locked and the key lost and the it up, rusted up and nobody can get out. If, God, if you're saved today, God looks at you, you're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. But there's no love of God shed upon unsaved men and women. The wrath of God is already on them. They're not part of God's family. God does not love them. God cannot love them. He's holy. They are wicked. He can't love them. He can't love them. He doesn't hear their prayers. And he looks at them as absolutely the opposite end of the universe from where he's at. Then how does a man ever get saved? How does God, 
How does God who is so holy reach out to you and to me before we're saved when we're so unholy? This is the great this is the great doctrine of propitiation in the Bible. This is the great doctrine of the advocacy of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died for every man and every woman. And when God looks at an unsaved man, the only way he can love them, the only way he can reach out to them, the only way he can reach down and a holy God touch an unholy thing is he looks at them through the death of his son. He looks at you and me before we were saved through the death of his son on the cross and that is the only way that God can love us. Without the death of Christ on the cross, he can't love us. We're, we're aliens to God. Illegal ones. We're aliens to God. We have absolutely nothing in common. The Bible says in Romans that we're enmity against God before we were saved. The only way God can see us, reach out to us, and love us is through his Christ, his son, death on the cross. He sees us when we're unsaved through the blood. When a man moves toward that cross and comes to God, God accepts him through that cross. That blood that was shed gets applied to his sins, and then he comes through it on the other side, and he's spotless and he's clean. But he can't just look down and say, I love all of the world. For God so loved the world, yes, but through his son. He loves them through the death of his son and sees us before we're saved through the death of Christ. That's how he does it. You know how you love somebody that's unlovable? You see him the same way. Take the same aspect that God uses and use it in your life. You look at the unlovable as Christ looked. You know the first thing you get in your mind? You got some people who are very unlovable in the ministry. You got people who are very unlovable in the world. You know how you love them in spite of who they are? You realize, first of all, that you didn't look too hot the first time God put his eyeballs on you. And yet, in spite of that, God, through his death of his son on the cross, saw you and me and loved me. That's how you do it. You absolve them in the cross of Calvary just like God absolved you in the cross of Calvary. That's how you love. That's how you love the unlovable. You realize how unlovable you and I were before we were saved and understand God loved us when we were unlovable. That's how. That's how. Lots of unlovable people in the ministry. Sometimes God's people do dastardly things. Sometimes the world does dastardly things. Sometimes do you. Sometimes they do it by accident. Sometimes they just mean it, every bit of it. So what? For you and I were saved, there were things that you and I did that were stupid, and then there were things that you and I did that we knew was against God's law that we just simply didn't care. What did God do? God loved us unconditionally through the death of His Son on the cross. That's how you do it. Let love be without dissimulation. Then he says this, and this is the last part of this verse. I think this is great. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Now, the word abhor means totally hate. And you've heard me say this many, many times before. This is not new to you. It simply means here that you and I as a child of God need to grow to the place in our lives where we hate the things that God hates and we love the things that he loves. That's your process and my process. That's what it's all about. Simply abhorring the things that God hates and then beginning to love the things that God loves. He says, abhor that which is evil. As you grow in your walk with God, I've told you before, I tell everybody that's dealing with an issue, I don't care what your problem is that you're struggling with. 
you will never overcome that problem till you fully understand and see that problem and see how much God hates what you're doing. And the more you hate it, the more you see how God hates it, the closer you get to God, the more you're going to hate it. I'm talking to a guy this week that just got saved a couple of months ago. And I love when God puts a thing, guy through this. He's not here today, so I, I can say this. I love this guy. This guy is one of the neatest guys I've ever been around in my life. He is absolutely wants to do right with God so bad. It's refreshing to me to, when in a world where Christianity don't want to do what's right, that some guy can get saved and just simply try to dump everything he's doing wrong. And you know what? That's not a reality. <laughs> got a problem with cigarettes. <clears throat> About three weeks after he got saved, he called me on the phone, just down in the dumps. And I thought, I thought something bad happened, you know, because I thought his wife left him or dog died or he lost a job or, you know, some terrible thing befell him. And he was all down in the dumps. He said, I got to talk to you. And I said, well, sure, what's the problem? And I come to find out, and I, I come to find out that his problem was that he, he can't quit smoking. Now, he's been saved for, at this point, about three weeks. And he thinks he ought to be able to kick everything he's got in life. I just kind of chuckle within myself, and I say, you know what, buddy? I said, it's, those things are just have to come in time. I said, the thing you don't want to do, I said, is you don't want to beat yourself up so bad that you just come to the place where you defeat yourself because you're in a situation where you just have to, have to get through this thing in a process. I, and I told him this. I said, you know what? Truth of the matter is this. You'll never kick cigarettes till you hate cigarettes as much as God does. And now you've only been saved for four weeks. You can't hate it as much as God does. Well, last week, but now it's been three months he's been saved. He come over to see me. Really down the dumps. I said, what's the matter? He said, I'm so mad at myself. I said, what are you mad at yourself for? He says, oh, he says, I'm embarrassed to tell. I said, you can tell me anything. He says, you know what? He says, I have spent $300 on cigarettes this week. And I said, well, why are you buying so many? I'm thinking, you know, carton of cigarettes is $50, I guess, you know. I mean, I, $50 for a carton of cigarettes, woo, man, that'd be enough to get me to quit smoking. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I spent $300 on cigarettes and ashtrays this week. And I said, what are you talking about? He says, I went through my house last week, threw every ashtray away. Went through everything that could be even used for an ashtray, threw every cigarette away, and then I finished the story. And I said, and then two days later, he went out and bought new ashtrays and more cigarettes. Is that right? He said, yeah, yeah. He says, that ain't the worst of us. I said, what's that? He says, I threw those away yesterday. <laughs> and I said, and then you went out and bought some more today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you see, that's a good thing. Now, you know why I know that guy will quit cigarettes in time? You know how I know he will? Because it's beginning to drive him nuts. Because he knows every time he does, it controls him more than God does. And this particular young man, he wants nothing in his life. At this time, anyhow, he wants nothing to control him more than God. Well, that's a good thing for a young Christian. And you know what? He'll probably wind up spending, in my estimation, dealing with people 35 plus years, he'll probably spend, oh, I don't know, $100,000 before he kicks it <laughs> by today's standards. But he, 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 he hates it. And you know why he hates it? He doesn't hate it because of the fact that it makes his breath smell bad or makes his teeth yellow or it makes his fingers smell like smoke or gets in his clothes. He hates it because it's something that he looks, he said this, 
And he, his was his problem. He said, I think my problem right now that I can't kick this has come between me and God. I spent the next 45 minutes saying, you know what? It hasn't come between you and God. You know when it comes between you and God? When you do it and don't care about it. That's when it comes between you and God. God's sitting up there just like me, arms folded, looking at you with a big smile on his face, saying, that's good, good. Next week, it'll probably be $400. <laughs> Once you get the purple ashtrays, they go with your carpet a lot better than the other ones. And they match the trash bags, but you do throw them out. That's the process. He'll kick it because he's learning to hate it. He'll kick it because he's learning to see that it's something, and in his mind, keeps him from what he wants to do with God. And he'll kick it. He'll kick it. He'll kick it. Absolutely he'll kick it. It may cost him a lot of money. It may cost him, there may, no, there may be no more ashtrays left at the Dollar General store. But the bottom line is this. He'll kick it. He says, the whore that which is evil. You'll never get what anything in your life till you hate it as much as God does. That's true of people that you run around with too. That's true of anything in your life. And then my next part of the verse, boy, I love this. Oh, this is one of these jewels in the Bible. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Now, I love the word cleave there. Because in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, when God brought Adam, his wife, the Bible says that the two cleave together. Cleave in Ephesians chapter 5 is, is the other word for joined. Cleaving is mean the two become one. You know why he used the word cleave here? You know why he said abhor that which is evil, but cleave to that which is good? Because I'll tell you what, you want to overcome things in your life and get to the point in your life where you can really be what God wants you to be? Get married to good. Marry goodness. Become one with it. Don't just talk about it. Become one with it. Cleave to it. When you got married, you know what? You're all husband and wives here. You're sitting separately. And some of you are sitting together and you're two people. You got a man and a woman. But the bottom line is the day you got, the day you got married, you become one in God's sight. How did that happen? How did that happen? How, did, how come you're still sitting side by side or one's up here, one's in the back when you're really one? Because it's a spiritual union. And just like you got spiritually married to your husband or your wife, <clears throat> you get spiritually married to good and you cleave to it. It becomes, you become one with it. That's how you do it. Great word. Great word. Then he says in verse 10, <clears throat> And now remember, these are the principles. These are the principles. Then he says in verse 10, kindly affection one to another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another. Now that's a great one. And this one's real easy, or at least it appears to be easy. You know, churches are families. Paul talks about it all the time. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, the tragedy of, of a dysfunctional family is the same tragedy in a dysfunctional church. And I, you know, I grew up with a sister. I know some of you grew up with more brothers and sisters than I had, but just me and my sister. But I know this. <clears throat> I know that, I know that uh, my, my sister and I fought all the time. The old I got older, she got, you know, and mom was working and dad was working and she was left in charge. She'd tell me what to do. I didn't want to do it. I used to fight with her like cats and dogs. And we'd go around and around and around. I'd call her names, she'd call me names, and, <clears throat> and it was a thing where <clears throat> just the way it was. But you know what happened one night? <clears throat> we went down to a we went down to an appliance store down in downtown Canton. And I was about <clears throat> 16 or 17 at the time. My sister then was about 20. 
Now, the riff was really there now, see? Because I'm 16, I know everything there is to know in life. She's 20, and she's still in charge when mom and dad are working. But all four of us, mom and dad, and me and my sister, her name is Sharon, went down to this appliance store. We were going to buy a washing machine or a dryer, I forget what it was. But anyway, we came out, and uh, my sister, as always, would be very bored with things, and she'd go get in a car, wait in a car, that was her deal. She was at that age where, you know, she had to do her own thing. So she's in the car. So we're walking out there. As we come out of the, out of the door, there's two guys, got the back door open. One of them is grabbed my sister around the neck. The other one's trying to take her purse. Now, <clears throat> I never thought about the nasty things she said to me that day. I didn't stand back and say, hey, I give it to her. Well, you yeah, both of you. Kick her down, knock her down. No. No. I never thought of the, uh, one time, I never thought of the differences that we had. All I saw was two guys pulling my sister out of the car. I didn't think to myself, <laughs> take her and I'll be now in charge. No. <laughs> my dad was probably in his late, early 50s, something like that, <clears throat> maybe late 40s. And, you know, I grabbed the one guy, threw him over this side, and my dad grabbed him, and, and uh, I grabbed the guy and got him down on the ground, and unfortunately the one guy turned around and, and knocked my dad, broke his glasses, hit him right in the face, knocked him up against the wall. I had the other guy down on the ground, and the guy swung around, kicked me right in the side of the face, knocked me out cold. We went to the hospital, my face rolled up like a watermelon, my dad's glasses were broken, it was a whole big thing, and, and, uh, and we didn't get a very good washer out of it either, it didn't last about a week. But anyway, it was a bad day. But the bottom line is this, you know what? I never stopped to think that my sister needed help. You know why? Because at the end of the day, she was family. She was my flesh and blood. And you know what? At the end of the day, we're family, flesh and blood. You can have your agree- disagreements, you can disagree with this, disagree with that, whatever. At the end of the day, when push comes to shove, it's a family. You know what people say about this church that many times you don't hear? It's one of the most amazing, and I love it. We were at some place, a couple, well, one, some place, all here all the time. When people come who are not part of our church and they come to an activity or you have a dinner or someplace or they go over here or they come to something that we do, uh, and sometimes even church services, but whatever, they'll always say this. When I talk to them afterward, they'll say, they'll always sustain, they say, you know what? I just felt like you guys are one big family. And I say, we are. It takes us 30 minutes to say goodbye to each other. I mean, uh, you know, we have a, I preach an hour and 15 minutes, we have a song service for 20, and it takes 30 minutes to say goodbye. I mean, you say goodbye to each other 10 times before you leave, and then you stand on the steps and wave. Uh, and then you get in your car and you honk as you drive out of the parking lot. That is the greatest asset I think this church has, among all the other things in the Bible, is the fact that there's a, a family unity. That doesn't mean you don't have spits and spats, everybody does. Me and my sister did, but at the end of the day, you're family. Your family. We're a family, and the families always have issue, but like I said, they're still family. They're God's family. Now, just like in an earthly family, if you have the right dad and the right mom, there shouldn't be, you know, there shouldn't be, I, I watch Jamie and Danny with, with Maddie and, and Kinsey. They'll, they'll, they talk about two kids that fight. I mean, uh, one gets it wrong, one thing for this, and somebody has it, somebody else wants it, or I've even seen them fight for the same spot on the couch. I've seen them fought over the last French fry, but I win that battle because I'm bigger. <laughs> and I've watched them sit down and make them apologize to your shit. And they don't want to. They don't want to. They look down. They look down. They look around. They don't want to. And she, they make them go to the other one and say, now tell them you're sorry. Give them a hug. Give them a kiss. And you can tell many times it's, it's because, you know, I'm being forced to do this. 
But the bottom line is, that's what it has to be. There should be no problem that a, in a family that a mom and a dad who are on top of things can't solve. But in God's family, come on. What issue should come up in God's family that we can't solve? You know, that's why he says over there in 1 Corinthians, he gets on them about going to court. They had issues in the church where somebody defrauded somebody or did something, so they took them to a court. You know what Paul says? What are you doing? He said, why are you taking a brother or sister to law? Don't you know that someday you're going to judge angels at the great white throne judgment? If you're going to be able to judge angels then, why can't you solve these pale little problems now? Where it is. We're family. Now, you know what the key to this is? Here's the key to this. It's the last part of this verse. He says, kindly affection one to another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another. That's the key. In honor, preferring one another. Now, what's he mean by that? What's he saying? Here's what he's saying. You honor a brother or sister in Christ. And when he's talking about in honor, preferring one another, what he's saying is this. You honor a brother or sister in Christ. And this is the way I should deal with you. You should deal this with me. You should deal with this with each other. What he's saying is this, that a brother or sister in Christ is given honor by you giving them preference over yourself. See how thing works? Husbands and wives. <clears throat> Once you get married, instead of singing Ode to Joy, a more applicable song would be The Fight is On. No marriage is problem-free. You're going to have disagreements. But may I give you a great key in your marriage to keep the problems to a minimum? Look at Joe. He's going to put this right in his Bible there right there. He got that down right there. You got to be careful with her because she can probably shoot as good as you can, and she probably still got her phaser gun someplace under the bed there. But you know how the bottom line is? Prefer one over another. You know what you had to fight about with your wife or your husband? You had to fight about who's wrong. You know what most of our fights are about? Who's right? You had to fight about who was wrong. Something happens and the husband ought to have enough spiritual insight to say, oh, honey, that was my fault. I shouldn't have done that. The wife ought to have spiritual insight enough to say, no, 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 that was my fault. I'm sorry, honey, I didn't tell you. No, darling, no, no, it was, it didn't matter that you didn't tell me, I should have known better. No, no, dear, no, 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 it was my fault, it wasn't your fault. No, honey, it really was my fault. Shut up, you jerk, it was my fault! No, and you, go, you but you take it, you see? You fight about who was wrong, not about who was right. In Christianity, that's the way it ought to be. You know what that's called? Preferring one above another. It's honoring the other person by putting yourself under them not over them. Now, I know that in every scenario, you have to deal hard line with things. I'm not talking about that. You know, you know, there's people that come in and actually try to cause, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about in every day. The Bible says every day, he talks about the fact that we are to, to love one another. Affection, affection, affection. Affection is something that you show. Affection is something that you display. And it's kindly affection one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. When you give me a husband and wife, 
who will argue about who's wrong instead of who's right, I'll show you two people who don't have many problems to deal with. You show me somebody who, who takes Romans 15.1, or that great verse, that ye that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, and not to please himself. William preached on that just last night at Louis Mission. Very good job, William. I learned a lot of things that night. Very good job. That's as good as I've ever heard. By the way, let me just say this. Your, your, your style, 1,000% proved. Last time, this is not a criticism, but it is, but it's a good criticism. Last time you got up there, you basically read everything off that. You, I, I couldn't believe it. You stood there. You were posed. You were controlled. I don't think you looked at your note one time. You had a tie on. That looked good. I even brought, I brought mine today. I haven't wore it yet, but I got it in my bag back there. I was impressed. Very good job. You know what it shows me? It shows me you're growing exactly the way that God wants you. See, I can't teach you those things. I give you the principles. I keep you accountable. I give you the truth. But you take those things and you do something with them. And I watched you. I, I stood back there. In fact, I stand back there with Bob. And I said, wow, so that's really good. I mean, you had a pose. You, you, you were confident. You, you talked. You, you, you really had something to say. That's what I'm talking about, you see. And your passage was right on text. Not to please ourselves. Not to please ourselves. I don't do this, I don't do this to, to, for my pleasure. The ministry, first of all, is to be pleasing to God, but then second of all is to respect you to the place and honor you that it's here to please you in the sense that, that you and I are part of the family. And that's the key to a marriage, to absolve each other. And that's the key to Christianity, to absolve each other of the petty little issues. I mean, there's going to be things that you have to deal with. There's going to be things that maybe you have to get a third party to work through. There's going to be things that you have to sit down and deal with. I'm not talking about that. Hey, 95% of the problems in any church are petty things that could be covered if you just followed some of these principles. Now the next one, verse 11. Not slothful in business. Now, for Christians, this is probably the greatest concept you're never going to fully understand. I mean, uh, God's people just never seem to see this. I've talked to people that, you know, you, got, you all work someplace. And some of you have your own businesses. <clears throat> I've, I've, talked, I've seen people all my life who they worked for somebody and they didn't do a very good job and they were Christians. They thought that the job was their place of witness. And so they'd steal money, steal time from the boss, witnessing to somebody else in violation of the company policy, uh, and then feel good about that. And then when the boss had a problem with it or they got fired, they would actually think of themselves as somehow I have been persecuted because of my Christian faith. No, you lost your job because you're an idiot and you stole from your boss time, which he's there to make money. If he would have hired you to be the spiritual leader and counselor of the business, it would have been one thing. He didn't. He hired you to crunch numbers, do this, do that. And you took from that, and you did something else with it. It's just that simple. And then you have people who have their own businesses. And you know what? We think, and again, we make the mistake of thinking that it's, it's, it's what we know about the Bible, what we, how well we teach it, that, that that's what people look to. And that's not true. 
People look at the way we live our lives and then evaluate what we say based on what they see us do in our lives. I'm just telling you. If I was a businessman, I have a favorite saying with my kids, my little grandkids. I'll be downstairs working on something, and I'll hear a little pitter-patter, a little feet come in, and they'll get up there, you know, and it's a little game we play. They know that Grandpa's not always up there, but he comes up pretty quickly, and I just give them a little time to get settled, and I'll go up, you know, and they'll all be sitting, waiting, and I'll do stupid things, you know. I'll, they'll be watching the Disney Channel, and I'll ask them if we could watch, uh, you know, a war movie, and they'll say, no, 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 and I'll sit over there, and I'll be sitting there, and I'll be rocking in the rocking chair, you know, watching them. They're watching television, and, uh, and, and then sooner or later, one of them will look at me. And I have this little saying, and they always giggle. I say, what are you looking at me for? I don't owe you any money. <laughs> and they'll get a laugh every time, every time, every time, every time. You know what? If I was the businessman, and you came to me, and I was a pastor too, maybe a little pastor, good part-time job, you know, and I was a, I was a businessman, and I hosed you in business, <clears throat> you know, I, I took advantage of you, and you came to church on Sunday morning, and you were upset because deep down inside you, uh, you know, uh, you, you know I took advantage of you, and I'm teaching the Bible to you. Would you hear my sermon? They wouldn't hear my sermon. Whatever I said, no matter how good it was, no matter how great it was, I could have honored the greatest truth in the world. You're going to sit there that morning and look at me, not in the light of what I'm trying to give you, but in the light of the fact that I hosed you. And everything I say, you're going to say, you ripped me off. You hosed me good. Not slothful in business, you see? It isn't about, it isn't about what I know about the Bible. It isn't about how well I do this or how well I do that. People will look at you and they'll look at me and they will, they will come to the point that they will judge whatever I say, whatever I do, based on how I've conducted my, my business, my life. And I said, you know what? Right or wrong, that's the way the people are. I'm not saying that that's the right thing for them to do, but that's the way they'll do it. The right th- and you know what? <clears throat> I never lend money to anybody that I don't think to myself, I'll never get it back. I don't set myself up for that. I've had people come to me and say, you know what, could you help me out? Da, 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 and I'll say, sure. When I give it to them, they'll say, well, I'm going to pay it back to you <clears throat> as soon as I get this or that. I say, sure. You know what? I don't even hear that. You know why? Because I have learned over the years not to set myself up for it. I learned over the years that nine times out of ten, they're not going to pay it back. <clears throat> and if I already conditioned my mind on the condition that I give it to them, then I don't have a problem with it later. It's when I don't condition it that way and I really believe what they say and then it doesn't happen that I could have a problem. But if I set myself up to say to myself, you know what, if you're going to do this, Bob, if you're going to do this, just don't be upset if you don't get it back because this is what you're dealing with. Then I don't have a problem with it. But if I didn't, I'd say, I, you know, <clears throat> I, I tell people all the time, you know, I, 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 we, we, don't, we don't put any locks and keys on a bookstore back there. You can come here and steal whatever you want. I, I have situations where I tell people, you know what, you, you know what, I, you know, you, you could, I'll just trust you, go do this, go do that. Then I'll put the little joke. Somebody says, well, what if I rip you off? What if I come back here? Well, when I get to heaven, I'll know it, and I'll be looking at you real funny over there, you know. <laughs> Bottom line is this. <clears throat> 
people don't go with what they hear us say. They go with how we react and how we do. And the Bible says not be slothful in business. You know what? In the things that ruin people's lives, the big things that we think of, is booze, drugs, women, the world. Let me tell you something that's worse than all of those, being slothful in business. A couple of years, many years ago, <clears throat> they came out with a <clears throat> new phone book that only had Christians in it. And the church I was at, they brought in a big box, a hundred of them. And they were about this size, and they were, they were the Christian businessmen's yellow pages. And every business in it was Christian. And, there, and it was a charismatic group that was doing it. And their mindset was, you know what, we had to support each other as Christians. Well, I was on duty that day, so to speak, and they brought them in there, and I said, I said, no, we don't, I said, I don't want these. He couldn't understand it. He couldn't understand it. He could not understand why I did not want these Christian deals. First of all, if you only deal with Christians... How are you ever going to win people to Christ? That was my first thing. It wasn't really my first one, but I was trying to be spiritual leading up to the second one. The second one was I told the guy, you know what? I don't want these because the biggest hosings I ever got in my life, I got from Christians. <laughs> the one saved world has treated me a lot fairer than God's people have. That's a terrible thing to say. But you know what? It's true. And that the principle is true. When we have a responsibility of who we work for, or we have a responsibility that we have our own business. It's one of those things that people don't listen to what they, you say. They watch what you do. They watch what I do. I mean, you sit there and think the whole message, how you got taken advantage of by me. Right or wrong, that's what human nature does. So he lays these great things out. And I, I'm, these are incredible things. And I'm telling you, these are, these are things... These are things that you just can't get past. I mean, they're incredible. He talks about, first of all, that we're to be cheerful in our forgiveness. He talks about the fact that, uh, that you and I are to, to, to come to the point where we, we, uh, we love without dissimulation. We come to the fact that we're kindly affected, affectionate toward another, not slothful in business. That we think these things and we put them in our life because these are the things that are the key the key to our success in dealing with people. See, this is the reality of it. This takes away all the smoke and the screen and the mirrors of who I think I am and what I do. The bottom line is nobody sees that. These are the things they see. And these things come because of the example that we have with Christ. Well, we're going to hold up there and we'll finish this up next week because it's almost... 12.30, and I got a funeral I got to do in an hour. And, uh, but let me just say this. <clears throat> I'm going to ask you to come Thursday night praying. I'm asking you to come with an open heart. I'm going to show you some things that you've forgotten. But I'm also going to show you some things that are about our future. And uh, things are never always what they appear, are they? I want to take the time to walk this through this, show you this thing, and I want you to come. I want you to come on holy ground. We're going to meet upstairs, as I said, exactly at 7 o'clock, and we're going to have our dinner up there. Then we'll move down to here. We'll have the kids taken care of. We'll meet right here where we're seated now, and we'll talk about everything we're going to go through, and then we'll, we'll have a great time. We'll have dessert. We're going to have plenty of coffee and plenty of things to, to be a good time. 
please be here at 7 o'clock. And I'm going to say this. If you have somebody who is looking for a church, if you have somebody that's unsaved, believe it or not, this will be a great night to bring them. One, if they're looking for a church, they'll get an understanding of what a real New Testament church is supposed to be doing and what it looks like, and it'll make their decision a lot easier. If they're lost... The Holy Spirit of God will take those things that we're going to talk about because they will be the object of our, our love and the object of our ministry. And the Holy Spirit of God will work down through those things. So bottom line is, is if you have somebody in that shape, you bring them. Don't think, well, it's just a meeting, so therefore it won't work. No, it's not just a meeting. It is a bona fide Bible study, but it's a bona fide Bible study of where we've got to go based on the Bible from this point on. And we have the hard decisions we have to make that night. And it'll be good. It'll be good for you. It'll be good for them. Uh, make sure you sign up this today. If you haven't signed up, uh, like I said, today will be the last day you can sign up. And then we'll, uh, we'll be here 7 o'clock sharp. And uh, we'll, we'll go from there. So let's pray. Father, thank you for these great truths.